0: Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. course podcast where we look deeply into twin peaks as a whole one episode at a time using the full scope of the show twin peaks and all its official media we don't use the word canon but we consider all official releases important because lynch and frost have approved their presence and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the twin peaks community and wider universe this podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of twin peaks including the third season which we consider as we go along Today, we're looking at the 25th overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 24, often known, depending where you look, as Season 2, Episode 17, Episode 25, or what the German regionalization team named Wounds and Scars. I'm your host, John. In Episode 24, Harry copes with Josie's death by getting drunk and trashing the bookhouse. Catherine gets a puzzle box, Miss Twin Peaks flyers begin circulating around town, Major Briggs and the log lady make a tattoo connection, and Annie arrives, gets a job at the double R, and meets Cooper. Ben has Dick host a fashion show, Pete plans the next chess move and teaches Andy how the night moves, John Justice Wheeler sings cowboy songs to Audrey, Ed tries to divorce Nadine, who plans a secret overnight with Mike, and a pine weasel wreaks havoc. When gets mad that Cooper cheats and puts Donna in danger to deliver his next move, and Jones ends the episode getting friendly with Harry. So looking at this episode from a all-the-way-through-the-end-of-season-three kind of uh, camera angle, we've got a few questions that I'm going to deal with this episode. How do people react when presented with the truth they've been actively avoiding? What if love really can be enough? How does Wyndham Earl maneuver through the shadows? And what connections are there to the supernatural? And before we go into those questions, we're going to look at the production history of the day back in 1991 when this episode was being created in the first place. So. Episode 24 was written by returning capable freelancer, Barry Pullman, who's written a number of episodes, and this is his second-to-last script for the show. And it's directed by film director James Foley, whose next film would be Glengarry Glen Ross. And in regards to James Foley, we've got Kimi Robertson, you know, after she's been dealing with all the uh, shenanigans as she saw it from Uli Edel and Diane Keaton... She gave this uh, this next new to the show director good props. You know, she said, at the time, it was starting to get really scary on set because David was away and we were all scared we would be canceled. Reading the writing on the walls. I think that was one of the last times I felt where everything was OK. James Foley gets it. It's very emotional to remember so we've got david lynch doing an art show in japan uh we've got everybody on set or all the actors and actresses worried about uh getting canceled uh probably the crew too um and um you know it's early january and we know that it was mid-january because um the attack of the pine weasel scenes was being filmed around then and um that Wheeler and Audrey's first kiss was being filmed on January 17th because desert storm began during filming and Billy Zane had this uh this anecdote to share in reflections he says right before we shot the kiss the crew was glued to the television uh, to the television set because they were just announcing our entry into the gulf war the first formal warfare our, nature, uh, our nation had been involved in or had been involved with in decades. Right before we rolled, I remember a grip saying, We're at war. Immediately, they said, Action. And the kiss had an urgency that was from another time. The kiss held a promise of peace. So we held fast to each other in that moment, and it was informed with a beautiful desperation. We didn't know what the future would hold or what that meant. It was par for the course for the experience, which was cemented in some kind of mad romantic tragic blur. besides that, the uh shooting went off without a hitch, and uh oh now i'm I'm speaking as me again after the uh Billy zane quote uh, you know besides that the uh the the shooting went off without a hitch, and um James Foley honestly didn't remember too much um for what he shared in reflections besides the ferret, but he did have this to say about um, Lynch, where it puts him in an absent position, but it also kind of explains a thing or two about how uh, Lynch sees the color blue. So Foley said, I was suddenly inexplicably taken with the notion that one of the characters, I can't remember which, should be carrying a blue suitcase. When I hit the art department with the idea, I was met with some worried glances and some whispering among them. Finally, someone let me know that David Lynch did not want the color blue to appear in the series. Lynch was in Tokyo for an art exhibit and was in the wrong time zone to be reached. So he didn't push it any further than that or make his case for why somebody in, in the show would have a blue suitcase. But um, yeah, it's interesting how um, proprietary Lynch is about certain color schemes. Now, as far as how this episode goes, it's also the first episode that has Annie Blackburn in it. And um, the character, uh, per Reflections, I'm going to talk about what Mark Frost said. He said, the character of Annie was central to the Wyndham Earl story, and the idea was that this was an echo for Cooper of the one thing he had done that he was most ashamed of, the affair with Earl's wife and... Uh, This presented a chance for him to redeem himself. So it was central to the Earl storyline, and I thought Heather was excellent. It was one of her first roles, and I thought they had good chemistry together. As we conceived the Wyndham Earl storyline and decided where where he was going to take us, I was very involved. So the um the comparisons between Annie and Caroline that we get further on were pretty much baked into the thing from the beginning and that this was like a repeating cycle for Cooper too. Yeah, I I think the fact that she's all of that and that Mark uh, yeah, that Mark Frost was so involved with this um you know the the guy who installed the mythology in a in a verbal way, like you know, it totally makes sense. And it's probably how she got to be the one to reveal the link between the tattoos of uh Margaret and um and the major and Al Cave, which she'll do in, I believe, the next episode. As far as Heather Graham, um, we've got Kyle McLaughlin saying in Reflections that Heather was refreshing and bubbly and sweet. They brought her in kind of as a potential love interest for Cooper. Again, looking back, I think maybe it wasn't the direction the character should have gone, although there were some very sweet stuff, and you got to see other sides of Cooper and of her as they came together. It was a very sweet time for the characters. Heather, of course, had gone on to do great things, and it was one of the first things she did. She was really talented. So he liked working with Heather Graham. He still has kind of that whole Cooper thing about, you know, it's like, oh, getting involved with people that are involved in the case. But honestly, yeah, Annie's in her mid-20s, as we'll find out. And, um, you know, so she's a lot closer. Cooper's puritanical streak isn't exactly triggered with this whole thing. But, you know, I anyway he he just kind (laughs) of says it in general i think he's overthinking the audrey uh relationship because people probably kept asking him about it yeah how did heather graham actually get involved in the show uh she was in an obsession commercial directed by david lynch it's probably the same series where ian buchanan came from in a way but you know a little bit further down the line uh but um they basically called her uh, soon afterward and, in her words, said, we want you to be Dale Cooper's love interest. Uh, so she went over to David Lynch's house, had a conversation about it rather than reading, as per you know usual David Lynch casting, and uh, she got it. As far as when she arrived on set, um, it's another way to illustrate what Kimmy Robertson was talking about. Uh, Heather Graham in Essential Wrapped in Plastic said, people were a little frustrated i think by the fact that david wasn't around as much and they felt the story was being disregarded i couldn't really understand because i was so excited to be there but everyone seemed jaded about it they had been through so much hype and all that and she also kind of felt a bit like an outsider because everyone else was pretty much a family at that point having gone through the uh, the twin peaks roller coaster and uh, she just getting there but um you know she never really felt like people weren't friendly; she just didn't feel like part of the family so much, but anyway, it was made in middle January and it ended up airing uh first on march twenty eighth of nineteen ninety one to nine point two million viewers so um what probably would have happened is there would have been a few more gaps in the season um but, you know, it would have only aired two weeks after the last episode of the latest. Um, you know, the, the back half of show episodes usually have more skip weeks in the February, March, April period of time, typically. Like um, the um, the the last two episodes of Cheers actually had a two-week gap between them um, at the end of April and beginning of May. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's just how it works around then anyway. It would have been probably something and the episodes would have spread out a little bit more and probably ended around the same time but um the hiatus actually delayed them all to be 6 weeks and then burned one week after another yeah the episode before this um it was already it was put on hiatus it was known and basically there was no announcement about whether the show would even come back at that point You know, how close was the hiatus to a full-on cancellation? It was actually pretty close. Philip Siegel, who worked for ABC at the time, in Reflections, he said, oh, very close to a full-on cancellation. They, ABC, were just so frustrated at the whole thing. I think that because it had come out of the gate with such wonderful intensity and wonderful press associated with it, it was frustrating to them they could not, they could not get their hands around it. And because they couldn't understand it, they couldn't control Lynch and Frost, who had the final cuts. Um, you know, I, I think they were just done with it and um, were ready to be done completely with it. But, you know, like, why mess with the, um, the goodwill the show had already gotten? You know, let's just put it on a hiatus. And that left room for Coop, the citizens opposed to the offing of peaks. So we've got two right-wingers in, um, in the DC political scene, uh, Michael Caputo and Keith Poston. Um, they formed coop, which is, yeah, the citizens opposed to the offing of peaks. And, um, they use their experience in building coalition, uh, yeah, coalitions to do it. And, um, I'm not gonna talk too much about their actual politics. It sounds like poston's a reforming conservative at this point like he's uh he's not completely uh <laughs> you know in into the uh the mega realm but uh Michael Caputo is so uh yeah I'm not super thrilled with where they've been but I'll say uh you know thank you for what you did for this show anyway um they um they basically got 10,000 members in two and a half weeks all through th- the mail. You know, these are postcards coming into their office for Coop. And, uh, you know, they got up to 20,000 members in four weeks. Um, you know, again, all joining by mail because it's basically pre-internet except for like the Usenet forums. And along the way, we've got Keith Poston uh, getting calls from David Lynch. And, you know, he said this in uh, TP uh, uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped interview. He said the the call he got from uh, Lynch basically said, we appreciate all you're doing here. But, you know, at the beginning of this call, he's thinking it's Caputo pranking him. And, you know, like right up until Mark Frost actually gets on the call, too. And then, you know, Postman's like, oh, this is real. Yeah, this um, this organizing force of you know twenty thousand members, um, they're sending letters, they're sending logs, they're sending donuts, um, you know, they they all keep arriving at the offices of ABC executives that uh, Caputo and Poston were able to get. You know, essentially, uh, these offices are getting deluged by all these crazy Twin Peaks fans. And um, beginning on April 6th, according to the announcement of ABC, they said it would Twin Peaks would come back on the air, return to its original Thursday time slot. Yeah, it does actually uh, stick to the Thursday time slot thing, but um, it returns on March 28th instead, two weeks earlier than the announcement. Or um, one week earlier than the announcement. I think it's because of sweeps coming up at the end. You know, it's like when um, when they would put it back on the hiatus, um, it was the end of March going into April, and it seems like it was sweeps-related, why they would delay the, uh, the final two episodes till June. You know, that announcement wouldn't happen for two weeks. So I think what ended up happening is... Um, they were giving Twin Peaks two weeks to see how the ratings would grow in order to see if they would keep it and let it burn out its episodes in in um, in sweeps weeks. What ended up happening is it, it coming back to the 9.2 million viewers. You know, I mean, the typical threshold still is over 10 million viewers, and it wasn't really the best sign. You know, Twin Peaks actually was able to sustain viewership. um, over all that excitement of, you know, the logs and the donuts getting sent to offices. But still, you know, per per Caputo, he said, and, and this is in Reflections, at first I was a little shy about talking about Coop, but after the show came back on the air, it felt like we had beaten Goliath. And we've got Poston saying in uh, the Twin Peaks Unwrapped interview, he says, once the show successfully came back, they were like, Look, we want to g- we want to say thanks to you guys. What do you think about if we have some people come out, you know, essentially for viewing parties? And then he says we got Jacoby and Leo as well as Ken Shearer, who is the head of the studio. And Shearer uh, basically, you know, confirms this. He says that. Uh, he went to DC with some of the actors. Um, had a viewing party at a bar, and uh, basically they were trying to draw some press attention to to the fact that this is how people watched a show in big giant groups. You know, ABC really wasn't totally on board with that because the ratings numbers, while it isn't the actual whole picture, it's the only official version that the network could work from to get advertisers. And yeah, I mean the uh, the 9.2 million viewers is more than episode 21 got, but it was less than episode 20's 9.8 million viewers and where their numbers fall, it was 2 weeks uh, the, it was the equivalent of 2 weeks before the announcement of hiatus. Yeah, like I said this episode is 2 weeks away from being officially canceled and you know the plan of how to run out their episode numbers. You know, so who knows? Maybe if everyone at the watch parties watched on their own TVs individually, maybe we would have still gotten a third season of Twin Peaks on the air back then. But, you know, what can you do? This is just how it all came out. Now, as far as how to um, interpret this through Lynch's lens, we get the, uh, the 1993 uh, Log Lady introduction that he did for the Bravo Network with Catherine Coulson. So the log lady says, sometimes, well, let's say all times, things are changing. We are judged as human beings on how we treat our fellow human beings. How do you treat your fellow human beings? At night, just before sleep, as you lay by yourself in the dark, how do you feel about yourself? Are you proud of your behavior? Are you ashamed of your behavior? You know in your heart. If you have hurt someone, you know. If you have hurt someone, don't wait another day before making things right. The world could break apart with sadness in the meantime. So basically take the time you're given to you know to, to believe in empathy and grow your empathy. Um, you know things do change. He's admitting that. you know, having empathy when things are changing, and before things are changing is important you know like growing growing the light growing the positivity may keep things from breaking apart so like i i think you know that's just a general like um uh, it's almost like an aphorism in a way but it's also thematic with the um uh, the way the positive and the negative the love and the fear uh work in twin peaks and um i think it was due in this case to how Harry felt about uh, Josie, first of all, but how well everyone did or didn't take care of Harry, too, when he faltered. It seems to be the genesis of this thought. And, you know, it's like it helped Harry come back from the brink when he was worried about how he wasn't, you know, he was too late to give Josie the right kind of empathy and the right kind of help. Uh, That she could have needed before it all broke apart with sadness in the meantime. But, you know, the greater themes of Twin Peaks, you know, take responsibility for your actions or your lack of actions and your level of empathy. You know, it's also something we see here that Ben Horn is trying to do with Eileen, even the conversation he has with Catherine. You know, he's genuinely trying to, you know, take in, you know, go through the list of his wrongs and write them before it's too late again except i think in ben's case it's too late not in the hairy way but in the way that it's too late to do something that would actually be positive for other people it's just cleaning out his his head and you know also it's kind of something like where ed is trying to you know break it off with nadine while she's in this moment before you know she could possibly break apart even more but anyway, it, it kind of also responds to the way that um, Lynch used a previous Log Lady intro to talk about all the different kinds of illnesses. You know, I, I just feel like Lynch is just riffing off of all these things with this Log Lady intro. Now it's time to actually look at the the full episode in in, in a scene breakdown way. But first, we're going to hear from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcast here on ruminationsradionetwork.com. Alright, so welcome back. We are here again talking about episode 24, and I'm going to look at our first big question, which is, how do people react when presented with the truth they've been actively avoiding? So how does Harry do it? He drinks like crazy. So, you know, the episode begins on Harry's drunk eyes and there's a shadow of a hand turning a glass. And we get to see all these previous images of him and Josie with their saxophone theme playing. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, the, uh, the chemistry they have, the lack of chemistry they have, it's all on display. And, um, you know, then we get to see Harry's eyes one more time. And, um, I'm going to mention how the Talking Backwards podcast, um, their, one of their guys, Tyler, uh, he put together an audio montage of their relationship that is so much more comprehensive and hilarious than this, um, this string of flashbacks that we get here. Um, it's found in their first few minutes of their uh, Talking Backwards podcast covering this episode, and I highly recommend it. It'll give you a good giggle. Inside this episode, Harry looks up, he sees Hawk, who's bringing Meals and Wheels prop of uh, of breakfast uh, from Norma, you know, covered up in those uh, silver containers. And, uh, you know, Harry laughs and just says, God bless Norma, maybe later, maybe later. And um, he ends up ignoring it for the whiskey bottle that's right next to his glass at the ready. And, um, you know, at this point, he's still halfway with it. You know, he's not too drunk yet. Um he checks in on how things are going, and then he says, you and Cooper can handle it. It's a pretty simple town. Used to be. I guess the world's just caught up to us. So, um, okay, he knows that things are in good hands. Which means that he can just let go of that whole thing and, you know, all his personal responsibilities, he can just let them go and get completely blasted. Uh, This is almost his way of giving himself permission to do it. And um, it's also interesting that, you know, it's like, um, you know, used to be a simple town. And these Harry's words here are kind of trying to cover the gap between a town that was absolutely shocked by the murder of a high school girl. And um, this world now that barely glanced at Josie's death and, um, you know, the Interpol file that Cooper's reading when Hawk enters to say Harry's about to hit rock bottom. So, yeah, I mean, this this world of Twin Peaks is a lot more blase about things and, you know, already dealt with, uh, you know, Jean Renault and, you know, the, a breakup of a drug ring. And, <laughs> you know, it's all coming to the surface now. And, um, yeah, maybe the world did catch up with this town. But, yeah, so when Hawk checks in with Cooper about Harry, you know, it's like they check, you know, is he eating? Um, when will he be back at work, et cetera. You know, then we get an excuse for why Cooper's the guy to fill Harry's shoes mostly and why Frank Truman needs to fill them in season three rather than Hawk because Hawk says, you're the senior lawman, Cooper. Let's just let the rain fall as it has been. And besides, I hate paperwork. So, you know, we're blaming it on the fact that Hawk wants to be on the field rather than be a bureaucrat essentially. You know, that back, you know back to Harry, the next time we check in with him, Harry's still in the same spot and it's Cooper who um who goes there? And you know for the guy who says, you know, um, Albert, not one word about this you know, during the investigation. he's finally blunt with Harry because he's now read Josie's Interpol file details and he does have all the details in front of him. So now he can be blunt, even though you know Harry's half drunk at this point or a uh, full drunk at this point. And, um, you know, he goes through the litany of all the crimes that Josie had been involved in. But, you know, of course the only thing that makes Harry pause are the two prostitution charges. So, you know, I, I don't know, Harry, Josie is a sexual possession. You know, it's like, that's half of how he feels about Josie here. Um, he does love her, but you know how much, who knows, but it's, um, her sleeping with other guys that really gets him to think about it. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Not not a great look, but, you know, kind of par for the course for 1991. Anyway, how Cooper uh, justifies him saying all the, the crimes from the Interpol file, he basically says, Harry, eventually it's going to help you to know that she's a hardened criminal, a killer. And, you know, we get two get-out-of-here's from Harry. And then, you know, the shouted third one that means he's serious. You know, get out of here, go! And um, that was all in act 1 and um harry basically has the better part of the next two acts to bridge the gap between the uh the Josie that he was uh, that he was um having a relationship with and the Josie that he was just told about by Cooper he uses that time basically to enter the anger stage of grief you know starting with that yell the go you know it's like the scream in twin peaks happens when someone is not able to understand the information in front of them and um it's not really too far afield from where harry is here with the uh i mean granted you know, he's got this uh as uh the cooper duper podcast put it he's got like the harrison ford kind of growl and uh you know it's styled after that kind of thing and you know they wished he had the the harrison ford point too <laughs> but uh you know we got what we got and um yeah, so it seems like he's just entering the anger stage of grief. You know, at at the end of the the third act, Cooper is brought in by Hawk basically to to calm things down because at this point Harry has trashed the bookhouse, and um, you know we got Harry sitting on a table with a gun in his hand saying, "Hey, Deputy Dale, how's business?" You know, Cooper basically thinks that you know a good start of you know calming down is um, you know getting Harry's gun though of course you know harry says he's never handed over his gun his entire life you know then he kind of gets into the heart of what he's actually thinking because he transitions into also never crossed the ocean never got to china and you know like he's kind of bamboozled by the fact that you know she came to me and made everything better at this point it's not dramatic music anymore even though he still has the gun it's it's the um The Twin Peaks theme is playing here. So, you know, I guess the dramatic tension is over, um, even though it's, you know, still not over in the scene itself. And, um, you know, Cooper says, you know, Harry, your life's still your own. Josie didn't take that with her. So he's kind of saying, you know, it's like you have personal accountability for how you move forward from here. Harry yells some more that he should have taken her away from here. And, you know, she didn't have to die. But, you know, he should have done something about it so that wouldn't happen. So, like, is, is it kind of like the bargaining? You know, it, it's almost adjacent to the bargaining stage of uh, grief that he's doing here. You know, eventually, you know, the, this, this is basically when Cooper comes in for a hug and uh, Harry drops his gun and, uh, you know, Harry accepts the hug, gives one back. And, uh, you know, it's like, I, I think at this point, like, Harry's leaning toward acceptance. You know, the, this, it cuts to a commercial here. And then, you know, when the when the show comes back, um, Harry's basically tucked in on the couch like he's in bed. You know, Cooper and Hawk just finished tucking him in. And, you know, Cooper uh, wants someone there keeping an eye on him tonight. You know, whether that's for Harry's uh, protection or protection from Harry, you know, who knows. But it makes sense to have somebody there. You know, it seems at this point like the, the Harry storm has quieted. You know, they start getting a little poetic about the guy. You know, it's like Hawk, Hawk says, yeah, I've never seen him like this. It was like taking a hike to your favorite spot and finding a hole where the lake used to be. Josie had power. And uh, Cooper says, a man who doesn't love easily loves too much. A good man. Hawk says the best. And uh, <laughs> you know, to stop this uh, back and forth of aphorisms, we got, you know, Harry Basically, you know, you know, revealing that he's not totally asleep and says, keep going because he likes what he hears. (laughs) So, you know, like hearing all this good stuff about himself after he's finally calmed down, you know, it's like this is a good way to get out of the negative frequency that he's been in. You know, sure, the grief fever broke and, um, you know, he's begun his recuperation process. You know, that's that's essentially when the ramifications of Josie's past comes to find him. And we get, you know, the the guard who was there, you know, he's reading and he gets knocked out uh, through a through a head wound. And uh, we find out that it's Jones who puts down her weapon near Harry. She undresses, uh, gets her hair down and climbs under the camera angle, presumably to climb into bed with Harry. And, um, you know, that that's a cliffhanger to dive into more later. Yeah, that's that's all we get from the episode, but also all we get from Harry so let's start looking at some other characters how does nadine react when presented with the truth that she's actively been avoiding um well here her physical eyes actually see accurately for a minute and then she starts dodging again so she she can't see out of her left eye and she recognizes this when divorce is mentioned you know it's like we get um the beginning of the scene begins with the um with the shot of the gas farm with the neon sun and the golden goose on top. So, you know, there are symbols of positive energy evoked immediately, you know, whether accidentally or otherwise by Foley, you know, the choice was made and it kind of works thematically. So Jacoby is moderating Nadine and Ed, you know, Nadine knows that they're breaking up. You know, Ed and Jacoby, you know, say, you know, it's more complicated than that. But you know, of course it isn't to her, you know, they're making it too serious. It's just, you know, they found somebody else and you know they're they're done dating. <laughs> and um Jacoby tells Ed, you know, it's like there are no secret tricks or magic words. And you know, he's talking about to recovery, to understanding things. He continues saying it's like the dissolving of scar tissue around the wound. She'll start seeing reality again when her mind begins to feel safe. And you know, Ed asks when and Jacoby says, Can't say. That tissue's packed yeah, packed in pretty tight. So, you know, they try again. Uh, approaching Nadine about divorce. And, you know, she's like, you guys are being too serious. And um, Ed gives up straight out. And Jacoby basically says to Nadine, Nadine, you and Ed are about to get a divorce. And this is immediately like she immediately waves her hand in front of her eye patch. And she says, I think I've gone blind in my left eye. So, you know, she hears the word divorce and her physical eyes snap back to the present. Uh, For a moment, you know, even, even though her mind is still teenage. So from a Jungian point of view, she is absolutely illustrating that she is not integrated. And, um, you know, she's got these two selves. She's got the physical self and she's got the one that her mind is in. You know, the question is, does she react further to this revelation that her left eye doesn't work? And uh, from what we can tell uh, outwardly, not at all, because... You know, it just seems like it's one more of those instances when her mind is almost feeling safe enough to re-enter reality from her wildest dreams, but couldn't. And, um, I mean, it could be a foreshock to the quake that will happen to her reality when the sandbag hits her head in four episodes. But, you know, as far as this episode, we're just left to wonder you know, we're left to wonder longer because she's with Mike in her later scene, you know, which is absolutely hilarious because it reveals that, you know, Holy shit. Mike is as interested as she's been saying he is, you know, I mean, though, you know, based on Nadine's state, does that mean that Mike is also looking away from things that he'd rather not look at to be on the same frequency as Nadine? Uh, you know, like maybe he was assaulted by Nadine, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Um, You know, the way he handles himself in episode 29, I think he really has discovered empathy somehow. There's this complicated gap of missing scenes uh, that we don't get to see between when Nadine wore him down and when he became open to love. But, you know, in this scene, um, you know, Mike seems totally on board. You know, Randy, the concierge, has the honeymoon suite ready for Mr. and Mrs. Hinkman uh, and, you know, Mike. Uh, you know, he's dressed up like a middle-aged dude and Nadine's just positively glowing and Mike's over explaining everything, you know, it's like, yeah, and, uh, tomorrow we're going to do some deep sea fishing, you know, and Nadine's just like, Oh, goody. (laughs) So like a really, a really dirty, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? A dirty phrasing right there that got around some network shenanigans. And I, I thought that was, you know, like, okay, good for you, Twin Peaks and good for you, Mike and Nadine. You know, we, we've we got Nadine just going into this. She's like, you know, I'm going to have a romp with my with my new guy. And, you know, she doesn't seem to be bothered at all about her eye or about what she and Ed and Jacoby were talking about. But, you know, maybe maybe there's still a little bit of that under there because, you know, when Susan decked out in 90s garb uh, sees Mike calls him out and says she'll see him at school um you know Nadine's beaten the hell out of that that um that bell you know it's like Randy physically looks at it and it looks destroyed uh you know dented in and everything and um you know was that part of Nadine's jealousy or was that part of her that knows her left eye isn't working and you know her body worried that her fantasy is going to fall apart And that's about as far up uh, uh, Nadine's storyline as we can get. So we're going to go now to, you know, how does Ben react when presented with the truth that he'd actively been avoiding as a Civil War general? Um, You know, what does he do? He starts leaning into righting the wrongs of his previous self. And he seems to actually want to be better, though he doesn't know how to be better. Um, you know, the first time we see him, he's at the Hayward house. And this is the Hayward house after Earl had already been there doing a stop by as Gerald Craig. You know, we'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, it's like now the uh, the Hayward house is kind of tuned to the dark stuff. You know, now that the darkness has entered the house, they're on a negative frequency, possibly. And, um, you know, Ben's bearing his soul essentially creates collateral damage that begins here for the Haywards. Um, And, you know, when he gets there, the first thing we see is the creepy living room shot where, you know, Bob crawls over the couch. And, you know, this time, instead of Donna answering the door for Wyndham Merle, Eileen gets to the door first and answers for Ben Horn. So, you know, Donna notices that somebody else answered the door and she goes into snooping mode and notices that Ben is there taking Eileen's hand, kneeling next to her in the open doorway where anybody outside can completely see this, um, and then, like, Ben's either whispering into her ear or smelling her hair or probably both. And, uh, you know, Donna is not amused by any of this. And, you know, we'll see that, you know, Ben's trying to um, make amends for past mistakes. Yeah, we don't know quite how that's going to go here. But, um, you know, next time we see him in this episode, Ben seems to be more on the correct side of personal growth when he's speaking to Catherine at the fashion show you know, Catherine, you know, is basically, t- you know, saying, you know, who are you kidding with all of this? You know, Ben says he's being 100% concerned, 100% sincere. And he says, have you ever in your entire life had an experience that truly changed you? And you know, in this case he's referring to the change that he went through you know, getting a fresh start after being the Civil War general. You know, Catherine says, you know, please spare me the born again pitch and level with me. You can't help to stop my development plan. So what do you actually expect to gain from all this? You know, Ben goes into it and says a really good speech. Actually, he says, you know, it's a first scrubbing on one of the dirtiest conscious consciences in the entire Northwest. And hopefully it'll happen to you. So, you know, he he goes on to say, you know, no matter how much money um, he has this black, miserable, clawed up dirt inside him. And uh, he says, I am finding that the one thing that really affords you joy in life, the only authentic thing is giving. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed to find that out. So he's kind of giving Catherine advice too like you too could be in a state where you're actually getting joy in your life. And you know, he's probably never experienced this kind of joy that comes from giving before. So like he's kind of high on his own supply. You know, we we have Catherine who, you know, got the puzzle box earlier in the episode that she's completely preoccupied with. And you know, her curiosity was overriding her common sense then. Um she's still able to see that The Ben in front of her is, you know, kind of who he says he is. And, you know, she wonders if he might actually believe in his words. You know, she says, God help you. You sound like you really mean it. You know, then Ben kind of throws a little bit of his old self in it and says, you know, Catherine, why don't you take this opportunity to transcend the lifetime of megalomania and egocentricity and write us a big fat check to stop Ghostwood? Which, you know, they share a laugh about it because they totally know how absurd that is, that she would, like, do something so against her own self-interest. And, you know, then he walks away, leaving her to wonder what just happened. So, you know, it's like, who knows? Maybe he is trying to put a chink in her armor that way. You know, maybe help change her to the joy, you know, because, like, he's still is really into her. And, uh, you know, it's like even like she was the only one who could snap out him from his uh, Civil War delusion. And, um, you know, they, they had their love connection where she says, kiss me, General Lee. So like, I think he might actually want the best for her too while still trying to, you know, get one up on her as a businessman. So, yeah, it's like both sides of Ben Horn are still working great. But yeah, that's that's about where we're at with that question about you know, people confronting the stuff they didn't want to. but um, you know, it's generally a positive frequency that they're dealing with because you know it's um, you know, personal growth moments. Um, but the other way to get there is through love. And the next question we're gonna look at is, what if love really can be enough? And um, you know, that's basically um you know major briggs we're gonna hear you know his biggest fear is what a, you know the possibility that love might not be enough um but you know love really can be enough and we're gonna see it here in this episode you know in a way that we can kind of answer that question so so far this episode love has sent harry into a spiral or you know triggered <laughs> harry going into a spiral um nadine's used it to cocoon further and ben may not quite know how to use it yet and um you know how to how to use empathy less like a weapon and more like a tool but you know there are um there are characters who might be actually on the positive side of this too and um we can start by looking at audrey and john justice wheeler Audrey's involved in the Stop Ghostwood campaign pretty much the whole episode um you know she she wasn't really interested in relationships per se when she gets smitten by Wheeler yeah so she's kind of like Mid process with like the business stuff that she and Ben are trying to start. You know the the first time we see her this episode, she's giving a, she's giving an example of how to runway walk for the girls who are going to be in that night's fashion show, and um you know she checks in with Dick Tremaine, uh, who's you know at the time being a total lech about you know Tim Pinkle and you know. We we get, you know, like, what's a Pinkle from Dick? And, uh, you know, and Pinkle's giving a talk on the pine weasel. And, uh, you know, Audrey continues, you know, it's like the endangered animal, you know, as if like maybe Dick isn't paying attention to anything. And, uh, you know, Dick and Tim don't seem to want to work together when they do meet. And, um, you know, like uh, Tim comes in with a stuffed pine weasel prop. Which you know probably isn't going to be received well since he's endangered anyway, um so you know it's a you can kind of see that the people working with Audrey on these events are there more for the comedy than for the uh the pathos, let's say, and you know it's here when Audrey first crosses paths with Wheeler this episode, and you know they're they're both doing the i'm gonna apologize and talk very quickly and importantly at the same time as the other person's doing the exact same thing you know it's supposed to be kind of like a meet cute or you know at least a character reset where you know they're now allowed to like each other i mean i i don't think the acting quite sells it the way they're doing it but you know whatever we uh we get what we get and uh, <laughs> you know what what they end up doing at the end of that scene is agree upon a picnic date you know, we actually get the picnic date this episode, and it begins with an old cowboy classic, you know, the, uh oh, baby, not on the old prairie, which is, you know, totally romantic, I'm sure. But, um <laughs> you know, it's, it's sung by Jack directly into the face of Audrey. You know, it's, it's not supposed to be wooing her with the song choice it's supposed to be wooing her with the fact that he's wearing a cowboy hat and he's acting like a cowboy the uh, the singing cowboy trope um you know i mean he he's basically the uh, the dying trope of the cowboy personified you know it's like the equivalent of all the 80s characters that we're seeing on stranger things and a few other places you know idealizing the tropes from 40 years ago and um uh, I mean, that's how the world of 1991 thought of Cowboys. You know, it's like from a time about 40 years gone that's passed. And, um, you know, there's still a few of them left and he's the last Cowboy. He's the last John Wayne, you know, that, that's how he gets away with singing this like completely non-romantic song. You know, it's like the trope itself is supposed to be the romantic part, but we've got Audrey saying, you know, no one's ever sung to her before. She, uh, she says she she doesn't inspire much singing, most of the boys are afraid. you know Wheeler says to her in response, and I was like well they don't they don't know you then, not really and Audrey says, "I don't think anybody really knows me, so this is Audrey's character right here. um you know she's looking for herself, and you know she also wants people to acknowledge that she's looking for herself and that she's more than um, you know, how Sherilyn Fenn saw Audrey, which was the sex kitten, um, that she's trying to portray herself out of, and, um, you know, by the media. And, um, for Audrey, um, it's more than being seen as the disappointing troublemaker that, like, punctures styrofoam cups and lets that pour all over, um, uh, people's desks so that she can cause some chaos. And, I mean, the date ends by basically backing away because I'm not sure that uh, that uh, Zane and Fen liked each other or loved working with each other. Let's say, and um, you know, it's like we get the further away shot where um, where she's feeding him something or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not against the scene, the romance, just it feels, you know, tough with the, uh, with the actor chemistry, but also, I mean, it's just a rushed kind of thing, you know, trying to fit in a romance from the writers, um, over the course of six episodes or less, really, um, five, five episodes for these two. And, um, you know, they're, they're trying to, uh, cram in as much, um, romantic energy that would have come before it as like with um you know cooper cooper and audrey they had more than five episodes just for kind of winding it up and you know it's like we're we're having a tough time dealing with that as viewers and we're gonna have the same problem with annie and cooper but uh yeah as far as what we're gonna see in this episode um the next time we see audrey she's working ben's stop ghostwood campaign and uh the event itself is absolutely fun. Um, You know, well, Ben starts out talking about, you know, animal preserves are these little worlds that serve as sanctums for species. And um, you know, that, that little monologue that he begins it with is thematically appropriate with everything in twin peaks. And um, you know, the, these, uh, these little tiny spaces need to be saved and are worth being saved. And it's like the, you know, it's like, you have to save nature or the um you know that part of the world will die it's like you have to protect um you know these little parts inside you before they die like it's um thematically appropriate um but you know the actual event after that is a fashion show where you know lucy's look says hey world i'm here and you know it's like just ridiculousness which is so fun um you know, Andy just uh, uh stopping still, like, you know, like, I don't know how to move in this. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, then it moves over to the Ben and Catherine scene that I talked about. And uh then it shifts over to Pinkle being introduced to a silent room that he will not win over. You know, he fumbles getting the Pine Weasel out and, you know, says that the Pine Weasel is interested in Dick's shiny uh buttons and his cheap cologne and he actually convinces Dick to give it a kiss and you know like we get lines like hello little pilgrim as he gets closer to the to the pine weasel and uh you know then we get some great uh comedy acting from Ian Buchanan and the the ferret can uh, ferret cam silliness and um you know it's absolutely fun to me i like that kind of stuff in my twin peaks um but we get um you know Audrey's there at the microphone trying to get people to stay calm while everybody's just running around and screaming but you know she's uh tripped and pushed off the stage right into John Justice Wheeler's arms and um you know he tells her he didn't come for the fashion show he says uh I came for you and you know they kiss because of that and um you know we get one lady screaming into the mic at the end to uh you know fade the scene to black or cut the scene to black and um you know that's all we get from these two folks uh until next episode, but this time I felt like you know like okay, I can kind of see these two together, and you know maybe it was the uh the urgency that Zane was talking about w- which uh related to the fact that the country just went to war right before this scene was uh, filmed but uh it did feel a little bit more like there was actual connection at this point and um and that you know audrey. You know, sure, she's businessy, but, you know, she's still being seen as, you know, uh, Wheeler's coming for her. You know, the whole her, not just the part that, you know, is doing a good thing for the community with the event. The other person who seems to be mostly associated with the love field is Annie. And she's associated with it um, via Cooper, of course, but via Norma, too. You know, the first time we see her, in her first of two scenes this episode, you know, it's like she's arriving into town. She's got her suitcase and, uh, you know, it, it's it's th- with that familial um, kind of love. You know, she walks past the major at the counter who is not doing a good job remaining in the shadows. Uh, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, you know, Annie smiles, you know, Norma calls out and, uh, you know, they're both full of smiles and a hug. Um, uh, Annie is introduced to Shelly. Um, and you know, Shelly says, You know, it's like, Oh, I've been told all about you. And, um, you know, Annie's like, You know, told all about me. And, um, Norma says, Shelly's like family. And we get the only necessary nod that we need toward Vivian right here. Um, because, you know, Annie says, You know, with our family, that's not exactly a character reference. And, um, you know, Norma asks, How did you and mom get along? and annie says you know like well we could talk about her or we could feel good about things i vote for plan b and norma says me too i'm glad you're here so you know they can brush off the fact that you know maybe there's a complicated backstory between annie and vivian as well without needing to invoke her even by name you know annie shifts straight over to feels a little strange the real world little things like i'd almost forgot how to use money And, you know, like, we'll find out in a few episodes that she was there in the convent for at least five years, um, based on other things she says. And, um, you know, the, then, um, Annie continues, you know, the closest thing we got in the convent were bingo chips, no charity, Norma promise. So, um norma basically says you know it's like don't worry i'm gonna work you till you drop so you know it won't be charity there will be personal accountability and work ethic that annie is going to uh genuinely try to grow into you know her her good life now that she's you know prepared herself uh emotionally and mentally in the convent and um Yeah, Norma is going to respect her as someone who can use the opportunity that she has here. And the next time we see her, she's already in the waitress uniform in Act 3. And, um, you know, she's already earning and growing her opportunity in the job that she just got from Norma. And, um, you know, because she's in a good place, she's in a position to get a romantic love connection. And, uh, you know, Cooper comes up to the counter, uh, opens up his book on Tibet. And he starts taking his drink order and he says, um, you know, he gives his whole order, but, you know, he looks up as he's saying it. And then he says, wowza, by slowing, slowing his words about a cup of deep black Joe, please. And, you know, this is, um, you know, just him smiling at her. And he says, you must be Norma's sister. And she says, I'm Annie. How did you know? he doesn't exactly say why, but he says, Dale Cooper, law enforcement, are you staying in the town for a while? And, you know, she says, I might be here quite a while. And he says, it's happened to me. So, you know, it's like, they're already establishing that, you know, it's like they're new between peaks kind of grows on you. And she actually says it looks like it's grown on you. And, uh, he says it has a way of doing that. So I think he's like, um, we have something in common here, and I hope it happens because there's something something good feeling here. Um, so Annie pours the coffee. Cooper notices the scar on her wrist, too, and then he starts treating her more gently. You know, she says as she's pouring it that she's worried that she made it too strong. And, you know, he holds his hand up like he did in one of the earlier episodes, takes a sip and says really quietly... It's like, you made it just right, Annie. So, like, you know, the thing she's worried about, he wanted to, you know, give her a reason to not worry about it. You know, because he's got coffee, the, um, you know, the symbol for, like, thinking and intuition, he can now feel that Earl was there. Um, You know, he's got that, pre- you know, that, that presence feeling finally now that he's, like, right there drinking coffee so he was able to recognize earl too but um you know while he was talking to annie it's like earl wasn't even there like anytime he's kind of on a love adjacent frequency it's almost like cooper can't feel too much from the uh fear-based frequency and he may have missed earl um here but we've got a whole bunch of earl in this episode and um we're pretty much at my next question, which is how does Wyndham Earl maneuver through the shadows? So up to now, I mean, I've talked about how people handle being confronted with the truth, um, that they've been avoiding this episode. And, um, you know, we get Earl being presented with a different kind of truth uh, that he doesn't want to see, but he hasn't been avoiding it either. He just didn't want to see it. It's, um, essentially how Cooper has been getting help this whole time, you know, rather than Earl's desired, you know, mano y mano, you know, one, one man versus one man, you know, it's like, he, he wants a, a shootout <laughs> or, you know, like a, a, a duel. And, um, you know, he's, he's not happy that, um, Cooper is reaching out um, to people and asking for help because that's what you do when you're having, a duel with you know the problems in your head is you reach out and you can grow light amongst each other and like you know fight the duel off because it's not really a duel it's just um you know the darker parts of yourself you know thematically that's what's happening here you know it's like earl represents the darkness that wants to separate cooper from everybody else you know, he's not doing it exactly like that, but that's like his role in the dark versus light kind of argument as as far as Cooper goes. The The first time we see Earl this episode, you know, he's sniffing deeply all these flowers and, you know, he, talk, he talks about, you know, thoughts about living back in nature. And he says, when you try to imagine what it'd be like to go back Im- image is imperfect the mental image is always perfect so i kind of feel like you know there's um, there's all these thematic connections to memory with the uh, you know the internal and the external being um, different visually and um, you know i i think he's really sniffing these flowers deep because he wants to get these scent memories that he doesn't have anymore of the twin peaks area probably And, you know, to to reacclimate with this um, sort of new to him location. But, you know, then he takes the paper from Leo. He finds Cooper's move. And, um, you know, he says all this uh, gobbledygook because, you know, the staff on Twin Peaks, besides Mark Frost, um, don't know too much about chess. And, you know, it it turns out that they're going to use it as a thematic texture, whether they know or not. So, you know, it's it's not something that they felt like it needed to be right because they were working with um, TV that wasn't fine tooth combed. You know, it's like today it's because of shows like Twin Peaks and the fact that, like, you can now pause your television. Um, you know, it's like you you now expect people to pay attention to every single detail and that shows are worth studying. But back then, TV was basically disposable and um, like you, you, you could never even see it again unless you were recording it. And that's the only way you can pause it, too. You either had to be there in front of TV or you had a VCR. And I feel like probably only about half of America had a VCR at most anyway at that point. So it was one of those things that they just didn't prep for in the um, in the production side. And, you know, rightly so for the time. And also, you know, it's like a TV show in progress. You only have so much time to write these things anyway. And they just got burned by, you know, having all those rewrites. So, you know, I think at this point they're like, you know, it's like, okay, uh, no fact checking on the, on the, um, on the chest. We're just going to go ahead and make it fit thematically. So we get, we get, um. Earl reacting to Cooper's move, saying, this isn't a move, this is a trick. He's playing a stalemate game. Cooper doesn't understand the meaning of stalemate. And, um, you know, stalemate game apparently isn't actually a true term in chess either. So, you know, of course he wouldn't, and Earl wouldn't either. But, uh, you know, he he's um, treating it like this is how chess works in the world. Of Twin Peaks. And, you know, he kind of like flaps his paper down real hard. And, you know, Leo is visibly reacting terrified to him. And um, Earl says he's getting help. And he throws his paper around again. And he says, I cannot tolerate people who do not play by the rules. People who shirk the standards. And then he hits Leo. And then he hits Leo again. And um, says, many people are going to regret this. You know he keeps um uh, he keeps his side of things by you know giving his move to to the people later but um yeah, as far as um cooper getting help, it's worth mentioning that you know we've got Pete puzzling through a bunch of chess moves like you know there there are chess boards all over the place, and uh you know Pete studied all the previous games and everything, and he's basically narrowing the death toll down to only six people dying and um you know he wishes he could get it lower and um you know we've got cooper's strategy on this whole thing correctly calling out earl's impatience he says uh he doesn't want pawns he only wants royalty protect those particularly the queen and we can frustrate him we've got um earl being frustrated but for different reasons than cooper was expecting then you know we get the cute scene with pete teaching lucy and andy and you know it's like the knight moves it does the little hook thing all the time every time you know it's not optional and you know it's it's very cute and i'd i'd be remiss if i didn't point at it for a little bit and say you know great great scene for everybody and um as far as all the people that are going to pay for, um, Cooper's asking for help. Um, it begins here. And I, I think, you know, it would have, it would have been a scene where he would have talked to Donna anyway, but I think adding the chess piece for Doc Hayward, um, came from this reaction to Cooper's stalemate move. And, um, You know, in an episode where Josie's disguises are basically pulled completely off her and exposed to Harry as, you know, the full Josie, you know, we have master of disguise Earl hiding in plain sight, you know, and doing, doing what Josie was, um, with all her different relationships, being somebody completely different for everybody, you know, here, you know, it's like, we've got, um, we've got Earl being multiple disguises in this episode and, uh, you know, as he begins to make people regret helping Cooper. So the first time we see him, he's insinuating himself into Donna's day, you know, which, which ups his involvement for finding his queen. Um, but yeah, like I said, it also doubles, uh, getting, do, getting to Doc Hayward too. So, um, you know, Donna opens up the door to the older mustached, uh, Earl who is, you know, looking for Bill or Eileen Hayward because he's Dr. Gerald Craig, an old friend of Will's from medical school. Uh, you know, he's going to a convention in Spokane, but you know, wanted to stop and give a gift on the way. Um, so he knows a lot of de- details, just like he printed off Leo's uh, rap sheet. Um, you know, he also knows that Donna has other sisters, uh, you know, by asking, you know, which daughter are you? So, you know, he's one of the only people that remembers that Donna has sisters at this point. And, you know, during the scene, we're getting the, uh, the, the soundtrack is like that freshly squeezed, you know, like swishy drum stuff that's, you know, kind of cute. I guess that's for Donna. But, you know, the... um the image we get when she's answering the door in the first place is the shot of the living room where it's the Bob climbing over the couch shot, so you know does that represent Earl's mindset, or that you know Donna's just you know walking through like nothing's happening, but you know there's danger here too, so you know she offers uh Earl something to drink uh they talk about like small towns that it looks like will found himself a piece of heaven here and um. He acts like he hasn't accomplished as much as Will has, you know, because he's dead. Uh, He's playing a dead man. And then he gives advice like, you know, high school is difficult. You have no idea what you want to do with your life. And so it seems like absolutely none of it applies to your life. Well, don't worry. It'll all work out. Enjoy it in all its absurdity. So he gives like generally good advice for a teenager here. You know, he gives he gives Donna a reason For Donna to be on his side, you know, manipulation, you know, then we get the, the lodgy music in the score and, um, he has a small gift for your dad. Can I trust you not to open it? So now that she's on his side, um, you know, do what I ask and don't, you know, don't reveal the, uh, The game too early. And you know, he leaves a number of where he'll be staying, and uh he hopes to see her later, he says. So, you know, obviously that's uh if you're my queen, I hope to see you later, that kind of thing. You know, later on, Will and Eileen come home and Donna delivers the message from him. And um, you know, they're like, it's not possible about Gerald Craig, because um, you know, Donna basically says, Well, he knew everything about me, and you know, he left you a gift. You know, Will basically explains that that was his roommate. And he, um, as Will says, drowned on a rafting trip in the Snake River. I was there, Donna. I tried to save him. Not only is he researching Donna, he's also researching uh, by digging into Doc's own personal trauma and trading again in more fears from more people. And Eileen's called the number in the meantime and says that the number goes to a cemetery. And uh, Will opens up the box, and we get knights to king, or knight to kings, bishop three. Doc Hayward kind of gets the idea of what's happening here. And he says, That man, he's very dangerous. Don't let him he- in here again. Understand? You know, Donna gets the hint that she might have been in a bad situation, but, you know, she's not too concerned. But, um, you know, Doc takes the box to Cooper that's the Gerald Craig disguise in a nutshell. And then we get to see um, Earl as a random biker too. And he helps convince Shelly that she could be a queen. And, um, you know, we, we get Norma holding up the flyer for miss twin peaks, uh, calls Shelly over. And, you know, we get Shelly being not interested, not even for the cash prize and the scholarship that we learn is associated with the prize. Uh, and, you know, we get Shelly uh, or mansion. Amic is, really gifted with comedy and wish we could see it more often but you know she says um i would bring back all the world leaders i would bring all the world leaders together make them form a circle and join hands because you can't make a fist holding hands and she does a goofy face at the end and uh, you know norma just thinks it's fun and she says you're a shoe-in you know, we get Biker Earl um, agreeing, too. He suggests that she enters because she's pretty. And, um, you know, she's, oh, I don't think of myself as pretty. And then, you know, he talks about, you know, it's like how, uh, you know, some pretty, you know, it's it's an inner thing. So, like, he's like, you know, you radiate goodness or you radiate beauty from the inside, too. And, um, you know, he's just trying to be, like, nonchalant. And, like, you know, she knows that, I mean, he knows that the direct approach wouldn't, you know, it'd be too much for Shelley. Yeah, he's he's doing his best to get his queen there too, uh hedging his bets. I want to take a minute with Miss Twin Peaks as a concept too. Um I I think essentially it's a May Queen thing, you know, it's a variation on uh you know, it's like you know, crowning crowning a new woman to um kind of be the new beauty of the year. It it ushers in um you know, like renewal and um you know, it's like it's a ceremony for the the growing of crops and fertility and all that stuff, you know, it's like, it's old school stuff. And, um, Earl, I think wants to use this as, um, something, you know, like if you, yeah, it's, it's like, um, you know, themes of, well, the fact that there's a cycle in the first place and yeah, the harvest, the renewal. Um, but I think Earl wants to add in something with the ceremony that, you know, you need a death, to be a proper sacrifice for that renewal to take place. And, um, you know, he's getting a little old school about this stuff. Um, and, you know, also, Laura was the previous Miss Twin Peaks, as we'll find out later. And, you know, she died. So, you know, cycles of trauma repeat in Twin Peaks. So why not the cycle of Miss Twin Peaks winners dying, etc., you know, until the Black Lodge can be bested or satisfied? You know, so I, I kind of feel like it's... it's um It does capitalize on the fact that Twin Peaks cast has a whole bunch of beautiful women in it, but it also thematically works in that way. And Earl is like, he's like textually using it in this way too. He's planning to use it in a way where, you know, a death has to happen at the end of it. So, um, you know, while he's here, he also sees Cooper walk in and, um, makes the connection with Annie. So, you know, he's watching from the opposite corner for that whole thing. And it's basically, you know, I, I think he sees of Annie that this is one more person to twist into his plans. So currently, Annie, um, Earl is like tangentially connected with the supernatural side of things, at least visibly. And um, I I want to ask the next question of what connections are there to the supernatural? So I mean, um, also mentioning Annie recently, like there's a chance there there's still a chance that she could be a tulpa like lure for Cooper that gives him the 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 final reason to bodily enter the lodge, you know, which is a literal representation of repeating cycles that begins for Cooper and Caroline Earle you know i I know that was the intent by Frost for Annie, you know, textually making her. The reason that Cooper wants to try again and try to fix his past mistakes, um, by being different with this next woman he falls in love with, you know, it's like there there's all of that, and the fact that you know if you're stuck in a lodge loop, as he seems to be in um, in season three, you know, it's like he can be kind of stuck in a lodge adjacent loop with his trauma too, um. So you know, it's like there's ways to see Annie as being tangentially connected to the supernatural as well as things go on and I will look into that but you know here we just get the meat cute but you know I'll I'll mention it when I can <laughs> uh just cuz it's worth exploring but more tangibly um I want I want to start with um, Thomas Eckert's manipulations from beyond the grave Uh, because there are a lot of supernatural undertones even though like it seems like it's just you know he's a crime syndicate guy we get um you know all around him we get the fact that you know josie has been captured into the wood of the great northern and um there's gonna be that weird tincture that uh jones puts on her lips and harry's lips in order for um you know almost uh I mean, it's in order to summon Josie's memory, and it seems like a ritual before she attempts to kill Harry. So, like, there's all these weird supernatural things that happen around Josie and Eckert. It might also be how, um, you know, Catherine's attention has been drawn to, you know, open a puzzle box rather than be thinking about the puzzle box as... You know, like, oh, it's just as probable that it's a trap from her mortal enemy, Thomas Eckert, rather than, you know, some kind of victory trophy. So is Jones's work also amplifying Catherine's wants and uh, appetite? Because, you know, in the scene, you know, we get uh, Catherine pouring over blueprints, you know, assuming. I'm assuming it's for the ghostwood project that she's working on, but she looks up and she sees Jones there and Jones just says, the door was open. And Catherine says, a country habit. We're all so trusting, meaning she doesn't trust Jones at all. So she motions Jones to sit silently in a chair when Jones declares herself the executive assistant to the, uh, to the, the late Mr. Eckert, you know, uh, Joan says, you know, she's getting Eckert's and Josie's bodies. They'll be buried side by side. Um, and Catherine wants to know why she's really here and draws a gun, but, um, the tone kind of shifts, um, from that point because, you know, it's, it's a gift from Thomas and it's a black box. You know, we get words from Joan saying, you know, there's a few more things to tidy up like Harry. And, um, you know, she'll be leaving tonight. And then she just basically wishes good luck, Mrs. Martell, like it's a challenge, like it's a challenge already accepted. You know, Catherine doesn't actually lower her gun, uh, but she also doesn't trash the box either. You know, she eyes it curiously and it almost gives me an idea with her. You know, it's like, you know, my precious, you know, it's like, is the box loaded with um, with energy that demands to be opened or is it just Catherine you know one more time trying to uh, be better than Eckert by cracking his last code um, but you know either way Catherine's usually smarter than this and she would protect herself along the way in you know a think 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 kind of way um, but it's not happening here more Josie-related uh, supernaturalness is, of course, the fact of, you know, why did she only weigh 65 pounds? So Cooper's talking to Hawk about it and says, you know, Do- Doc Hayward couldn't determine cause of death. So, you know, it wasn't a heart attack. Maybe she did die of fear. And um, then he says, you know, body only weighed 65 pounds. And then Hawk pauses. That's impossible. So, you know, it's like he... um you know, Cooper tries to go on and say, you know, maybe something to do with what I saw in the room when she died. And instead of um, trying to actually explore that and get to the bottom of why she might be 65 pounds, Hawk just says, maybe we'd better just whistle on our way past the graveyard in a way that works with his living map. You know, it's like, we've got the black fire material not being said aloud now. And it's like, you don't want to know about that. So like, you know, Hawk doesn't talk about things that are on that negative frequency because he doesn't want to give it power of being described in words. Cooper just agrees here. And, you know, it's like, yeah, we will just whistle past the graveyard. And, you know, he drinks from a yellow cup, shifts to, you know, the cold trail that Earl left them. And, you know, the series never deals with Josie's weight again. But, you know, of course, I've got to throw out some possibilities that it could be associated with. So, um, could that be the weight of what a tulpa is? You know, the the I, I'm talking mostly and like, you know, there these these glitches that happen in season three that that happen when people like Phyllis and um uh Roger and um Mr. Todd and all that, you know, like when they're killed, they kind of glitch a little bit. Um I kind of feel like there's part of themselves that dies. Um, and leaves the physical body in some kind of glitch in that scene. I mean, in, in season three, where, um, if you've been allied with the darkness, like that part of yourself gets pulled away from you, um, when, you know, upon your death. And, um, you know, it, I, I've been thinking about it that, you know, it represents with a, uh, with a glitch when, Uh, the frequencies are so separated visually it's almost like they're leaving the negative frequency and going to the physical frequency only with those glitches so like you know it's like they're they're kind of separated from their body like um kind of like maybe the garmin Bozia that got taken out of leland um by bob in the red room you know it's like part of themselves seems to get paid to the um to the darker uh, representations of the supernatural side of things. And um, I could see with Bob and the little man being there at Josie's death that like, you know, that part of herself that was um, trapped by the darkness that was uh, lured by the darkness in the first place might've made a deal with that kind of darkness in the first place. And um, you know, like that part of her, is heavier than like the, um, what is it? Seven grams or whatever of a soul. Like I can't even remember the, (laughs) the number, but you know, it's like, yeah, sure. The, the electrical energy of ourselves does seem to have weight, but it seems like the, uh, the darker side of lodge space takes more than their share. And because Laura never, I mean, Laura took the ring, um, and like, there is a representation of herself in the red room, but she never allied herself with the dark. She always fought the dark. So they weren't able to take her weight and she ends up weighing her normal weight after she died. So like, it's not necessarily the ring that's part of it either. Um, but yeah, I kind of feel like, um, because of Josie's, um, Wait, the fact she died of fear the fact that eckard's crime syndicate um seems to be making deals with the supernatural too you know it's like there's um you know there, there's a way that like the lodge denizens might just not be making a deal with people like leland palmer and philip gerard it could also be people like eckard and jones and uh yeah i mean the, the signs the signs point toward the fact that, yes, they're in league with some kind of darker magic, um, though maybe not all the way over to yes. Maybe it's kind of like the way Wyndham Earl is associated with the uh, the supernatural, that like he's trying to use it like a tool, and um, it just kind of gets him back in the end, just like uh, it kind of got Eckhart and Josie back at the end. You know, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of unanswerable questions here. But I feel like the associations do work well with each other. Now, more overtly, we actually have the, um, the hero adjacent side of Twin Peaks being more associated with the, um, with the supernatural in this episode. And, um, you know, we essentially get um, Briggs and Margaret bringing our understanding of Lodge Lore a little bit more firmly into focus. Now, this doesn't relate exactly to uh, the supernatural, but I love this scene when uh the major says compelling about the pie and we've got Shelly right in front of him who doesn't even seem to care for him. You know, she just looks at him like, you know, weirdo and then slaps the bill down silently and rolls her eyes as she walks away. Uh <laughs> so it's kind of fun that like Shelly just bounces off like anything remotely supernatural. But also to her, um, we've got Major Briggs being the dad of her absentee side boyfriend who, um, who sometimes slaps her boyfriend for smoking inside, you know, things like that. Like, um, you know, she's just like, you help turn Bobby into the guy that doesn't want to connect with anybody. Uh, (laughs) so, you know, Shelly might have a little bit of, uh, of, uh, extra sauce on her dislike for, you know, bouncing off what major Briggs is. um, But you know, in swoops the log lady. From there, you know, it's like we see her log come into focus, uh, first, and uh, her hand reaches out and touches the major's neck tattoo without invitation, and he notices, but he only reacts by turning his face to her. You know, there's no recoiling, there's no nothing, um, you know, no surprise even that somebody's touching him. And you know, she sits next to him, puts her log on the counter, and you know, she seems kind of winded and shocked by the, um, by the connection to Briggs's tattoo. And, um, she puts her hand on the log and it seems to be telling her something important, or maybe she's just grounding herself with the log after seeing and making contact with Major's tattoo. We don't get any idea where that goes until a number of scenes later when we see them they're both arriving together at the sheriff's station and um you know we see cooper in in the room with the chalkboard You know, he's got the uh the three triangles you know pointing toward each other kind of like the radiation symbol or whatever and uh you know, it's, it's rather than the stacked row of diamond shapes that we'll see next time he discusses the tattoos. So there's going to be a discrepancy soon, but you know, here we have Briggs saying, as you know, that pattern on the back of my neck appeared during my, uh, during my experience, of course, with no idea how it got there. And, um, Margaret talks about how her log noticed it first, you know, before Margaret touched it in the diner. And she says, I remember, look at the back of my leg. And she shows the two double peaked triangles. And um, she says, seven years old. I went walking up in the woods. And when I got back, I was told that I had disappeared for a day, which is the same length of time as Cooper's disappearance. All I could recall was a flash of light and that mark on my leg and that mark was on my leg. So the tattoos happen when taken bodily and when they make it through, possibly all the way through the White Lodge. So the major says, we all three recall the light. And Margaret says, and also the call of the owl. And Cooper says, yes, I remember. So they're all on the same page as far as the experience. But of course, you know, Cooper wasn't actually abducted. Margaret said, the only other time I saw that sight and heard that sound is right before my husband died in the fire. So, you know, we were connecting Margaret's husband, possibly also being absorbed into the wood like Josie. Though, um, you know, Catherine Coulson, um, in an interview later, says that the log is just the log. But, um, you know, as far as in the scene, we've got Major studying the illustrations that Cooper drew on the board. And he says, I'm connecting with something. And Margaret says, yes. And Cooper says, what? And Margaret says, I don't know. And then she just like soothes her log, almost like her log's upset. So you know they don't try to answer any questions here. You know it's it's just like how did Josie get in the lo- in the drawer pull? How did she get to be sixty five pounds? You know it's like these mysteries are here, and um, you know they're they're unanswerable. You know it's like we don't get why they were branded and only they were branded. I I mean it seems like it's a White Lodge related thing. I I possibly think that you know once you get a message from the fireman or the giant, um, maybe you get something that's going to be able to trigger it. You know, it's like there, there's all sorts of ways to look at it, but, you know, it's it's all technically unanswerable. I mean, the, it helps, though, to discuss and associate it with things and add in the conjecture because it helps you triangulate where you personally fall on all the meanings that we assign to these details so i mean i i feel like i'm close but not necessarily quite there and um you know i the, hopefully what i'm talking about here with all this conjecture will help you kind of think your way through all this lore stuff as we go and um you know it's like who knows maybe maybe one day further down the road i'll be able to add it in to something a little more concrete but um. Yeah, until then, I, I think uh, I think we just have to end the episode. <laughs> you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25 YL Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Ruminations of Red Rum. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full Electricity Nexus column at 25 yearslatersitecom and join us on our Discord server at 25YLA Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or, you know, let us know through any of our socials. And uh, we'll see you next time as we look into episode 25, which is the 26th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. I wish you the best of luck. My- To kind of deepen and expand deepen the expand. universe the show takes place the, and the show takes places the place uh, They'll really dig it. This is a, a gift to all the fans.